Uh, we began last week looking at what Jesus, our Lord, identified as the first, great, most important commandment in all of the Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is found in Deuteronomy 6. If you haven't done so yet, please turn there now. Uh, just as a quick recap, last week we began in verse 4 and saw there the foundation for loving God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is to say the Lord alone is God and there is no other. He is the sovereign Lord, I am who I am. And this unique God overall is also the God who made promises in electing love to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And he began to fulfill those promises by saving his people at the Exodus. And so through this great salvation, the one true God gathered for himself a people who could call him our God. Because he called them my people. So this statement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, serves as the foundation for loving God in that it calls God's people to consider who He is and what it, He has done. That's what we said was the foundation for loving God, His character and His salvation, uh, His revelation and His redemption. And then in verse 5, the command to love God is stated directly, and there we were shown the standard for loving Him, the standard and that was with all our heart, that is all our thoughts, all our affections, all of the allegiances of our will, to love Him with all our soul, which is our, our very existence, and to love Him with all our might, that is with everything that is ours, all our resources. Uh, so we desire then to give ourselves to Him, that, that's the essence of love, all we are, all we do. All we have, an act of self-giving to God because we see and consider His infinite worthiness. So if you think of when, when Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, uh, but the one who lays down his life for his friend, why is that such a sublime expression of love? Because it is an act of self-giving, giving in a sense all that you have, your very life. Verses 6 through 9 then detailed the pursuit of loving God. And we saw an important connection between the love of God and the words of God. One who gives himself in love to God will give himself to a pursuit of God's word. Remember verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Verse 6, these words you shall lay up on your heart. And this makes it plain that what love for God looks like is willing, joyful obedience to these words that he's given. Um, Dr. Peter Craigie puts it succinctly when he says, The commandments provide the framework within which the Israelites could express their love of God. It also makes one think of the Apostle John's word. He, he says, uh, when we love God, we obey His commandments, for this is the love of God. This is love for God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So then after teaching on the foundation for loving God, the standard of loving God, and the role that the words of God play in that pursuit, uh, Moses continues in this chapter to expound upon this great uh, covenant obligation of God's people, that they love Him. Uh, one commentator that I read this week went so far as to say, quote, it is in a very real sense true to say that the entire book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on the command which stands at its beginning. You shall love the Lord your God. And so surely uh, the rest of chapter 6 is that, as we'll see. Uh, in verse 10, Moses begins to warn of various threats to loving God, and that's where we'll pick up this morning. Threats to loving God. Uh, the first 
is the enjoyment of what is good. The enjoyment of what is good. Look at verse 10 with me. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, through Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, are satisfied, verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. So God has promised to give Israel this good land with great and good cities, houses full of all good things, wells already dug, vineyards and olive groves already planted, and therefore your provision And yes, even their enjoyment and, as the end of verse 11 said, for your satisfaction. So how can God's good gifts present a threat to loving Him? Again, verse 12, then, that is when you're enjoying these things, take care lest you forget the Lord. You need to watch yourself. Uh, To use the language of Proverbs, you need to keep your heart with all diligence when you are enjoying His good gifts because all too easily, the love of God's gifts can begin to supersede the love of God. Now, notice, uh, before I continue to talk about this warning, notice that Moses does not tell Israel not to enjoy these gifts. He just tells them that they need to be careful while doing so. Uh, On the one hand, I'm I'm not really happy with the wording of this outline that I gave you, and I realize I have no one to blame for that but myself. I wish, you know, Dana had a hand on it uh, so I could pin this one on her. But uh, the thing I'm not happy with is, is that I don't think we should view God's good gifts as threats. Uh, Neither should we, by and large, feel threatened by enjoying them. This this is very important. Uh, Before we move on to address this stern warning, and we will, God is not anti-enjoying His gifts. That is an error called asceticism, which means you cut yourself off from His good earthly gifts. So the ascetic Israelite would hear this command and say, Oh, well, burn the good and great cities to the down, to the ground. Uproot those uh, olive groves and, and vineyards. Remove all good things from the houses that the Lord filled them with. No, because we will focus our satisfaction on the Lord. So this is asceticism. Uh, the one who says, uh, in order to... Preserve my heart for God. I need to eat like only crackers, unsalted, and drink only water, enough to stay alive, and live in a shack, but make sure it doesn't get too comfortable in there, and live as a hermit so I'm not impressed and wooed by some cultural achievement of humanity. No. Stop. God is not against enjoying His gifts. His good gifts are meant to be enjoyed. 1 Timothy 6 uh, describes God as the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you know that there are verses in Deuteronomy that go like this? When the Lord your God enlarges your territory... As he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. And if you have a wrong view of God, you probably expect what comes next to be, 
So that is the time when you crave meat that you better fast from it and you choke that desire until it is a wilting flower. And then you can have a little bit. That is not what it says. When you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. Deuteronomy 12, 20. And a few verses before that, in verse 14. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that He has given you. God commands Israel to enjoy His gifts as a way of rejoicing before Him. So with that uh, parenthetical guard rail, hopefully against a misapplication of this text set up, acknowledging this is not a call for asceticism, we do need to be sternly warned by this text. Go ahead, enjoy what God has given you, but be careful while you do. Watch yourself, because forgetting God while enjoying His gifts is a very real and serious threat to your love for Him. That's actually so much the case that the author of Proverbs prayed, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Did not the rich young ruler refuse Jesus' offer to follow him, instead walking away sad at the thought of potentially having to part with his many possessions? Be careful. God's gifts could smother your love for God if you begin to enjoy the gift without respect to the giver. His good gifts actually cease being good for you if you forget Him. You could put it this way. uh, Beware lest you begin to enjoy God's gifts godlessly. So actually, this is a similar warning to uh, what I issued last week. when I said you need to be careful to connect your pursuit of God's words to Love for God. Similarly, you need to connect uh, your enjoyment of His good gifts to an overriding pursuit of love for God. And what does verse 12 say? How do we do this? Uh, If the warning is, take care lest you forget Him, then the prescription is just the opposite. Remember Him. Remember Him. Isn't that wonderfully simple? And beautiful instruction, enjoy God's gifts, mindful of Him. Practically speaking, how might you do this? I think that these verses in Deuteronomy 6 point us towards some solid principles. First, probably most obviously, remember God is the source of all good gifts. So God made this clear for the Israelites in verses 10 and 11, didn't he? Those cities you're going to inhabit, you didn't build them. Those houses that you're going to enjoy, you didn't fill them, and so on. They are given to you. But even later generations of Israelites in the land who would actually plant the grape plants or vines or whatever grapes grow on, would actually plant the grapes that they would eat and be satisfied by. They too were to see God as the source of those good gifts. And that's the way for most of us. God chooses to use our work as the means by which He gives good gifts to us. What a wonderful thing God does to incorporate us into uh, His good generosity that He shows toward us. Remember, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, James 1. The Lord opens His hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing, Psalm 145. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 
Next principle. Remember his words. Remember his words. Right? This warning stands in the shadow of, lay up the words of God on your heart. Uh, so God's word frequently gives either specific injunctions or general principles to help us to know how and how not to make use of his gifts. So, so his law is a lamp unto our path that helps us to know how to enjoy his gifts in a way that both pleases him and maximizes our joy in him. I remember also, next principle, that the ultimate goal of enjoying his gifts should be loving him. So, so we could put that point uh, this way. In the same way that you should see God as the source of every good gift, you should see God as the goal of every good gift that he has given you. Consider how might you use what he has given you to stir up your affections for him, to strengthen your allegiances to him. So if I desire to give myself to God with all that I am and all that I do and all that I have, can I use this good gift somehow to express and reinforce that orientation of life? And and sometimes giving yourself to God will mean giving away the good gifts that He has given you to His people. Next principle. Remember that God's salvation is His best gift to us. Remember that God's salvation is His best gift to us. Look again at what the Word says here. When you have all these good things, when you eat and you're full, then verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember that God has saved you in Christ. He has redeemed you from lawlessness and has made you a holy people for His own possession. Don't let that fade into the background in your consideration of enjoying His good gifts. Always, when when you come to God and say, "This this is wonderful that I have this and I got to do this. Remember Jesus' words. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And finally, remember that knowing God is the greatest treasure there is. And therefore, God is not a means to a greater end, to a better gift. God's best gift to us is God. And this is closely related to the last point because... The great prize of our salvation is that we get Him, to know Him, to love Him. So so in verse 13, if you look at that, we are told that we should serve God, which is actually the verb form of, of the word in verse 12 that's translated there as slavery. So on that note, uh, if, if we were to translate these verses in a way to To make evident that connection, we would read something like this, picking up in verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery or the house of servitude. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. Same word, verb form of it. So so God unbound you from Egypt that he might bind you to himself instead. God himself is the great treasure of our salvation. Salvation is when God untethers you from cruel masters and tethers you instead to the best of masters himself. And because this is true about God, this is key. Because this is true about God, you need to be convinced that if you seek to make love for God the goal of enjoying His gifts, that will not actually diminish your enjoyment of them. I'll say that again. Because God Himself is the greatest treasure If you seek 
to make loving God the purpose, the main purpose by, uh, by which you enjoy His gifts that will not diminish your enjoyment of them. You should not think, oh man, I've got to think about loving God when I enjoy these things? As if that would make your life a real drag? Do you really believe that living for God sucks the joy out of life? No. Loving God will actually augment your enjoyment of His gifts. Because they become a means by which you enjoy Him. The greatest gift He offers His children. Look at verse 13 again. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By His name you shall swear. So enjoyment of His gifts happens against this backdrop. I fear the Lord who is my God. I serve Him. I swear by His name. And fearing God and serving God and swearing by His name, you could think of that as various expressions of what it looks like to love Him with your whole heart, soul, and might. To fear Him is uh, to have this disposition of reverent and awestruck submission. It's that aspect of, of love, of affectionate devotion to God which trembles before Him. Service, uh, serving Him, of course, indicates a life lived for His sake. Swearing by His name in the context of Deuteronomy. Remember, Moses here is outlining kind of the, the terms of the covenant, uh, the, the uh, relational agreement that God has with His people that He saved by His grace. So in the context of Deuteronomy, swearing by His name means something like, I, I pledge allegiance to Him. I, I accept and willingly submit myself to the terms of the covenant that God is, is giving to me. Um, Dr. Craigie, who I quoted earlier, says, Swearing by His name means committing yourself solemnly to Him in obedience and love. Here's a litmus test of um, the state of your heart and how you think about God and how you think about His gifts. Taking that definition that Dr. Craigie just gave us, uh, do you believe that you can truly enjoy, deeply enjoy God's good gifts as part of a solemn commitment to love and obey Him? You can. And you must trust Him, love Him. The second threat to loving God Moses warns about here is an opposite danger. The allurement of what is evil. The allurement of what is evil. Look at verse 14 with me. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes, which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers." By thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. So did you notice that the section of verses I just read began and ended by referencing other nations. Those who will surround Israel in the land and those nations that are in the land that Israel is to drive out. Verse 14, don't go after the gods of the peoples who are around you. Verse 19, thrust out your enemies from before you. And other parts of Deuteronomy make it clear that God wanted Israel to do a thorough job of driving these nations out of the land precisely because 
their remaining presence in the land would provide a strong temptation for Israel to forsake the Lord and go after their gods. Moses warns them in verse 14, that same temptation will remain in the nations surrounding them. So don't go after those gods of these peoples. Don't serve what they serve. Do not devote yourself in love to what they devote themselves in love. So the application to us, I think, is direct and that we need to be careful lest we look around and we see people who don't love the Lord our God. And you see them and you think, huh, things don't seem to be going all that badly for them. In fact, are they actually better off than I am? Would I be better off living like that? They don't seek to give themselves all they are, do, and have in love to God. But they do so for other things. Should I? If, if you have never noticed yourself saying something like that in your heart, you may be one of the least self-aware Christians that <laughs> is alive. I probably shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> this is a real pull. This is a real temptation. Sometimes what is evil can be so alluring to our sinful hearts. And didn't we just confess that together in song? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I love that line because it, it confesses simultaneous truths that God, I really do love you and God, I really am prone to leave you. Bind my heart and your goodness to you. Part of what will help guard against the threat of the allurement of what is evil is to realize the connection of this threat to the previous threat that we discussed. If you do not enjoy God's gifts, mindful of God, then you will, in increasing measure, devote yourself in love to the gifts themselves as if they are God's. Or, as verse 14 warns in particular, you will begin to devote yourself to uh, some imagined alternate source, alternate giver of what is good and needful. The transgression of verse 14, don't go after other gods, will almost always be preceded by the transgression of verse 12, forgetting the Lord and the enjoyment of His gifts. Paul says this in Romans 1. Paul shows that there is a strong link between idolatry and thanklessness. Those who turned to worship the creature instead of the creator first did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, acknowledging him as the source of all good gifts. Verse 15 gives a very good reason to disincentivize Israel's idolatry. Don't go after other gods, verse 15, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. The Lord is a jealous God and His jealousy is His just anger toward those who owe Him affection and devotion, love, and they lavish it on another instead. The Lord is jealous, and so His anger is kindled, as this verse says. When He sees the love and the loyalty that He deserves being given to another, 
So this is not just an issue of love and loyalty that God wishes that he could have. It's that which he truly deserves. This is a justice issue in God's eyes, not just a love issue. So picture this. If you had a dear friend or a family member who was the victim of adultery, and let's let's say this instance of unfaithfulness was particularly heinous and flagrant, it would enrage you if you had a godly perspective about it. And the spiritual adultery that is idolatry is a comparable evil, but it is infinitely more heinous. God is jealous for the affection He deserves, the love He deserves. And He is, as verse 15 pointed out, the Lord your God who is in your midst. So there is no hiding from Him any unfaithfulness to Him. So essentially, what God here uh, tells Israel is that if you live like a Canaanite, if you go after the gods of the people in the land, Canaan, if you live like a Canaanite, you will die like a Canaanite. If you go after the gods of the nations in the land before you, you will suffer the very same fate that I intend to bring upon those nations, which he says is I will destroy you from off the face of the earth. And you know, the New Testament has teachings just like this. Uh, and, And this is the gist. If you live like an unbeliever, you will die, be punished like an unbeliever. And, and the uh, end of that logic train is that uh, if you live like an unbeliever, you are an unbeliever. So making a, a bit of a transition, verse 16 warns Israel of the allurement of turning from the Lord by reminding them of a time that it had happened in the recent past. Look at verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him at Massa. No one heard that and went, mmm, that's good, right? Because you don't know what happened at Massa. Uh, well, the incident being referred to here is in Exodus 17. We don't have time to turn there and read it, so I'll simply summarize it for you. Uh, this happens right after the Exodus, and the people in the wilderness. Uh, begin to quarrel with Moses because they have no water to drink in the wilderness. And they grumble. And they even say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us with thirst? And in this quarreling, they, they test the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, so their grumbling was along these lines. Uh, it sure seems like God is not really out for our good. Or if he is, it sure seems like he's incapable of securing it. We had it better in Egypt, which is to say, we were better off not being redeemed and not belonging to him. Is he even here? Is he even among us? Moses warns God's people of doing likewise in the land. When you get in the land, be careful that you don't start thinking, uh, what I possess in God and from God doesn't seem like uh, verse 10 and 11 talked about all good things. In fact, there are good things that I seem to lack, that God hasn't given, or even that God forbids maybe. So I must get that elsewhere. And so I must transgress the command to go after other gods to get that good thing, which I begin to feel is a needful thing. All my present lack of satisfaction sure makes me wonder, is the Lord really in our midst? Verse 16 tells us, don't go down that road. Don't do as they did at Massa. So, So what line of thinking would counteract provoking the Lord in this way, testing Him in this way? Well, it would be first to recognize all of the good things God has given you. And then to trust His goodness 
in the face of what may appear as him withholding good things. And then rely on him to give you everything that is needful. And believe ultimately that he is working to secure finally one day for you everything that is good. Everything that is good. But he does it in a way that he knows will preserve you and keep your heart his. Consider the goodness of his character, especially as evidenced in his salvation, to fuel your love for him, your continued self-giving devotion to him. So, um, what's the prescription? What is the alternative to this threat to ward off the allurement of what is evil? Verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God in His testimonies, in His statutes, which He has commanded you. So pursue diligently keeping His commands, which, as we've seen, the chief of which is you shall love Him with all your heart, soul, and might. A diligent pursuit of loving God is a necessary preventative measure to guard against the allurement of what is evil. So that's to say, just to resolve, to avoid unrighteousness is not enough. That must be paired with, or even uh, overshadowed by, a resolve to pursue the love of God. Look at verse 18. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. So, so through this command to conquer the nations in Canaan, God intended at the same time to fulfill His promise to His people to do them good and to use his people as his instrument of judgment upon these wicked nations, and furthermore, thrusting out all the nations, as we looked at before, would help protect Israel from the allurement of what was evil. Uh, so, so this is instructive for us as well. How do we guard against the allurement of what is evil? Notice the Lord didn't only give Israel the bare command don't go after other gods. He also gave instructions that were intended to protect Israel from even being tempted in that way. Do you see that? Uh, the Lord's prayer comes to mind. Jesus didn't teach us just to pray, Lord, lead us not into sin. But He taught us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Don't seek merely to avoid practicing evil. Seek as much as is possible and wise to avoid the allurement of it. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Do what it takes to protect yourself from being allured, turning from the Lord, our God, who is one, to others. So after warning the Israelites about these threats to loving God, Moses begins to speak again in verse 20 about the foundation for loving him. Again, and broadly speaking, he makes the same points that we talked about last week from verse 4. But this time, he lays the foundation for loving God in a more expansive way and from a different angle in that this is framed as a mock Q&A between a father and his son. Look at verse 20. Here's the foundation of loving God. Again, as we saw in verse 4. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Uh, why do you, why do we do all of this? Why do we diligently keep the commands of the Lord, His testimonies, His statutes? Why don't we go after the ways of all our neighbors? 
Why do we devote ourselves to the words of this law so obsessively? Why do we make it our ambition to love God with such completeness? This life-consuming obedience, it seems so costly. Why this love? Look with me again at verse 20. And this time we'll go ahead and read the answer the Lord through Moses gives. And this, this is beautiful. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Wait, did this father hear the question right? It seems, doesn't it, like this Israeli youth asks a question and dad starts way out in left field in his answer, right? Some of the kids say, whoa, I know what, I know what that's like. <laughs> I saw one nodding, I won't, I won't name him. <laughs> Oh, that was good. Okay. (laughs) I can't get over that. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. You know who you are. Um, Moses does not answer that question by starting with the line in verse 24, which is, the Lord commanded us to do these things. So his answer to, why do we do all this? is not simply because God told us to. That's true, and that's good. But by itself, that is incomplete to motivate our love and obedience. The answer that he gives is to tell an old, old story, to tell the good news narrative. Why do we do these things? Because once we were slaves... And God redeemed us out of that cruel bondage, saving us through judgment. And he made us his people, and he promised us this great inheritance with him. This is the meaning of our obedience to God. This is the foundation of our love for him. It's the backstory of salvation, the narrative of redemption, the reality of past deliverance, and the corresponding promise of future inheritance that our already accomplished salvation secures. And just as Moses hoped that this uh, inquiring son might learn, you too must learn to locate all of your obediences, all of your particular individual expressions of your love for God. You must learn to locate them in the grand story of redemption. Not every single time, but broadly speaking. And the authors of the New Testament, here's the connection to you. The authors of the New Testament present the work of Christ, His life, death, and resurrection as the great work of God, which it becomes uh, the new touchstone salvation for God's people. See, the the Old Testament prophets prophesied that there would come a day where no longer would it be said, as the Lord lives, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There would be a new coming, better exodus, a new and greater salvation for God's people. And the New Testament authors cast Jesus's work in this light that what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection has accomplished for us a new and better exodus. We We could go to several places in the New Testament to show this, but the most obvious, perhaps, is consider the Last Supper. They're celebrating the Passover meal, the time when they remember God's great salvation of his people at the exodus. And Jesus takes the bread and he reinterprets the symbolism and says, no longer does this represent your hasty departure out of Egypt. This is my body, which is broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. 
And he takes the cup, says, this is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. So friends, it is right, and and I'll even use the word biblical. It is biblical for us to read Moses' catechizing answer to this hypothetical Israeli youth and likewise connect our love and obedience to our salvation in Christ. Why pursue the love of God? And that at the very highest standard possible. Why desire to give yourself to Him by seeking uh, to joyfully obey all of His commands all of the time? Is because Christ has died and Christ has raised and Christ will come again. And in doing so, he has made me his own, and he has given me himself. Your children need to be told and retold this foundation for loving God. Your fellow church members need to be told and retold. You need to tell and retell yourself. We love him because he saved us. We delight to do his will because in love he has made us his people. So when your children ask, why do you seek to lead such a God-centered life all the time? When it seems so costly at times? And when you begin to wonder this yourself, and you will, the answer is the gospel. That gives you your identity. Uh, Calvin put it this way. He said, it would be absurd to refuse God as their lawgiver when they knew that by him they had been purchased to himself. In verse 24, Moses continues to build the foundation for loving God, motivating our obedience. He does so by highlighting God's character as it is expressed through his commands, namely his goodness. So, So verse 24, look at it. This is still part of the answer to the young man's question. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. For our good always. All these statutes that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. So our trust, having been saved by Him, seeing His goodness, His free goodness in salvation, our trust is that His will for us is for our good. Even His command that we love Him with our everything is for our highest good. And in fact, this is the lie that lurks under all sin, all the way back to the garden, is that God, through His commands, is not promoting your good, but is actually withholding good from you. So when you think of God's commands, when you think of God's law, does that put a question mark besides God's goodness in your mind? Or do you see God's commands in and of themselves as a revelation of His goodness? Do you see that God's commands are good gifts from Him for our good always? When you have trouble viewing God's commands as for our good, go back to the foundation for loving Him. Rehearse again that old, old story We were slaves in the land of Egypt. I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. When God commands us to love him, he is withholding no good thing from us. And finally, Moses shows that loving God is not only what we do uh, because of our salvation and for our good, but it is also the very righteousness that God requires of his people. Look at verse 25 and see there our last point in closing, the righteousness of loving God. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this command before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. So this is the conclusion to Moses' answer to uh, the hypothetical question from the Son in verse 20. What's the meaning of these commands? Well, this is the standard of righteousness. To love Him is the revelation of, of what God considers right as a response to those saved by grace. 
God gave this law to Israel not in order so that they might earn a place amongst his people. But remember, he gave this to Israel as those who were already redeemed and made his people by his grace. Uh, He gave this law to detail the right way they should respond to his salvation. But we have to confess, don't we, that all of us have fallen short of this divine standard. Woefully short. Not one of us possesses in and of ourselves the righteousness that this verse describes, that the law demands. The righteousness that comes from being careful to do all this commandment, to love Him with our everything. So hear the good news of the grace of God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus, through his life of perfect love of his Father and death and resurrection, he is our representative righteousness before God. He secures our full forgiveness from God. And he gives to us by his Spirit the motivation and the empowerment we need to pursue more wholehearted love of God. And for anyone who will come to Jesus with nothing, but a broken heart, a contrite spirit, a childlike faith. This salvation in Christ may be freely yours because of the riches of God's grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your law, which is for our good always. God, I pray that you would uh, secure in us the affection and devotion that you deserve. And thank you, God, that we do have an advocate, uh, Christ, the Son whom you sent, to reveal your goodness, to save us, and to make us your people. We love, love being your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.